Hi, I'm Kate Key and I'm Sanaya. We're two curious overthinkers who love pop culture. In this podcast, we'll be dissecting pop culture and technology trends and how they're shaping everyday life. Ever watched a TV show or movie, read an article or heard a song that made you stop and wonder what it reflects about us and the way that we live our lives? That's where we come in. Welcome to Dude, I was thinking. Where no thought is too fleeting to dissect, analyze, and follow down the rabbit hole. In this episode, I think we will need more self-awareness per second sure. <laughs> than any other episode for a long time to come, I imagine, because we are talking about English in this episode, the language. Specifically, I think what the ongoing cultural and socioeconomic significance of the language is in India. And I think it'll be useful to kind of look into the genesis, I suppose, of this episode. I feel like in some senses it began in 2018, but it began in last year when we were talking about this article by Sajit Pai. He's a venture capitalist right now, at least. But he had written this article about what he was calling Indo-Anglians, which he described as the fastest growing caste in India. And I think he came under like some amount of criticism for what was thought to be a very like reductive understanding and analysis of like caste as a grouping and him like equating it to like just knowledge of English. But essentially, I remember reading this article in 2018 and feeling seen but <laughs> not in a very like comfortable way mm. so indo-anglians i think he like was trying to describe a group of people that i think we fall into very much yeah. and like crucial to point out that it's a play on the word anglo-indian of course like if it yeah that wasn't yeah he was like searching for a terminology to describe people who speak English as a first language and are more comfortable speaking English than their mother tongue and for the most part speak English at home. And as a result, lifestyle choices, cultural consumption, the kind of things people like to do in their spare time, like it's very specific to a very westernized notion of a life. And he was looking for a term to describe what he's calling a psychographic, which is not just demographics when it comes to like socioeconomic class or caste but also what are the psychological characteristics of this grouping and I think the term he settled on was Indo-Anglians and I think it's also useful to kind of like read a little bit of this article or just to understand how he was describing it. I think what he said is these are people who speak English predominantly at home. They constitute an influential demographic or rather psychographic in India affluent, urban, highly educated, usually in inter-caste or inter-religious unions. I propose to call them Indo-Anglians, he says. So, yeah, I think while I was reading this article, I remember thinking, like, he was breaking down these people in terms of not only comfort with speaking in English, but the kinds of jobs they tend to have, the kinds of educational institutions that we study at and he was talking about like and obviously like the schooling system plays a huge role in English language education so it starts with like private schools and then it moves into like private universities which includes stuff like Manipal and Symbiosis International University which is where I studied so (laughs) that was a good feeling and like obviously these people are concentrated in bigger cities in India And not just in the big cities, but very specific localities. Mm. So like South Delhi and Delhi, Kurigao Park, Kalyani Nagar in Pune, whatever the fancy part of Bombay is. South Bombay, I guess. Bandra now. But I feel like that's still slightly contentious with certain South Bombay people. I'm not sure. But urban pockets. Like, or very like the the cool, you know. TBD. TBD. TBD, Bombay, affluent fancy neighborhood yeah i feel like even pavai is a part of it andheri is a part of it uh are you saying this as someone who like grew up in pavai but <laughs> i mean uh, grew up, but whatever, i'm a, time. like come on i have to stand up for my people so. yeah my, my people my people are uh, puna people and i did not grow up in kalyani nagar or korigam park my parents recently moved to korigam park annex so i have always been an annexed 
Indo Anglian, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, very specific neighborhoods, very I mean, specific schools. I mean, obviously, like, I'm sure there are outliers, but it's the, the idea of the people that yeah, live in the neighborhoods. Yeah. And I think, like, the part of this article that kind of <laughs> got to me and I still think about is talking about like the kinds of names that these people have and I think he was like quoting another article which was about first world yoga names and examples of this would be like Kiara and I don't know Kabir and Shania. Adi and Shania yeah see listen you felt personally attacked by that <laughs> I I kind of resent the fact that Karan Johar decided to name his character in that movie student of the, the whatever year. like Aryabhat's character Shania like because, you know, like, I don't want that to be the association that yeah. people have with my name. But yeah, I think, like, the whole point of this article was to think about this grouping of people who are not large in number, yeah. but, like, have a certain amount of cultural capital. And I think that's what's really interesting to explore through this episode, which is, like, it's not necessary that, like, English speakers or people who speak English as a first language are necessarily the richest people you know but they do have like some kind of like access to social circles or like they form a part of what we like kind of call the cultural elite but I don't know I think I want to like dig a little deeper into that as well because like what impact do they really have like what cultural significance do they really have and I think like it started with Indo-Anglians, but then I think we started thinking about like what kind of audience this is, right? For like cultural like production or content on streaming platforms. And I think that's when we chanced upon Eternally Confused and yeah. Eager for Love. Yeah, which was yeah. an informative when it comes to trying to understand what this audience is. But yeah, like what did you think about it? Because you've seen it twice now. I know. You've seen the whole show uh, twice. One more time than I would have wanted to, <laughs> to be very honest. I've only seen it for like research purposes. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, like the funny thing is that like once you actually start watching the show, you don't really mind it as much. Mm -hmm. um, but it did pose some interesting questions because I think we read this article and then for some time now we had been kind of thinking about like what is this level of fluency, right? Like to be a native English speaker, what kind of like vocabulary does that open up for you and as a result what is the kind of like access you have to like say western ideas or western content and jobs yeah Sorry. jobs things like that like what how does that open up and i came across this show eternally confused and ego for love which is produced by zoya akhtar's production company tiger baby films and it's basically a show about this like awkward, lonely, 20-something-year-old boy living in Mumbai with his parents who's desperately looking for a girlfriend. And the character... he wants to get laid, right? Yeah, he wants to... He's a virgin still, and he wants to get laid. And the whole show is basically this quest of him trying to like lose his virginity, Like relatable to so many people. I'm like... I, yeah, like this is such a classic Indian tale, <laughs> you know? Like... 20-something dude who lives with his parents and works in some tech company wants to get laid. An everyman story. Yeah, for sure. But the characters and tropes in the show are very, like, coded with this, like, Western awkward teen... Like, all of the tropes in, like, Western teen films. Yeah, I mean, I would not immediately think of this storyline as something that resonates with a large audience. Yeah, absolutely. And... We're talking specifically in India, right? Like, because when I was watching the show, I'm just like, oh, okay, whoever wrote the show has definitely seen Superbad. They've seen American Pie. They've seen Napoleon Dynamite. And what they've tried to do is, by the way, this character's name is Ray, which I think is definitely a very first world yoga name because um, mm -hmm. he's not Christian. He's uh, very much like a Hindu character living in South Bombay. He has a subconscious who is voiced by Jim Sarb. Oh, yeah. You had an interesting observation about that. I big, did. Big okay. mouth? Yeah, I mean, I did, I did. Which is, so, I mean, what struck me the most about this show is that it seemed to be targeted at an audience that has 
sort of done this required reading almost like like if there was someone doing market research for this show i imagine they're like the audience that wants to watch it only confused and eager for love has probably seen how i met your mother has probably seen all yeah. these movies that you listed has probably seen like netflix's other show about like you know puberty sex sexuality which is big mouth which also has like you know this like anthropomorphic like hormone monster that is speaking to you about like your true desires and you know it's almost like an imaginary horny friend and similarly you have like supplanted that same trope and put it into this show but i think the interesting part is like who are these people who have yeah. done this required reading yeah. and for whom this is a new appealing show i mean clearly you kethki because <laughs> uh, you wanted to watch it Oh my recreational but it's interesting because like netflix has invested a lot of money because it's an original yeah. production i mean this is a show by an indo-anglian for indo-anglians like 100% and, and all of that to educated s- yeah i mean and there's definitely like things which i think are certain like def- self aware about the show like ray can't speak hindi properly right and that's something that sajeet pai d- yeah, says yeah and he reserves his hindi speaking in very like specific scenarios yeah like he only will speak to the house help in hindi or like watchmen or janitors etc there's even a scene where he struggles with hindi so he like reverts to english which yeah. like you know it's happened to the best of us yeah you can't help but um, i don't know yeah so the, i mean there's definitely some you know interesting touch points which i feel like when i was watching the show i'm like okay they're trying to speak to a specific class or subsect of indian yeah you know like he is this privileged south bombay kid you know he gets served breakfast in his room he's got a job that his father secured for him he's unbothered by Im- impending like unemployment but he's also not like massively rich but there is this like whale of privilege that exists around him but so he lives in bandra not in he lives in naraman point am i getting it right he lives in south bombay in the show though. okay i i'm from pune i don't need to know what's happening <laughs> in bombay some some south bombay people if they are listening to this podcast are deeply upset by what you just said but anyway but basically like there's this but then there are certain moments in the show where there's definitely a stretch like for example ray's parents who he lives with which is a reality for a lot of indian 20 year olds right mm-hmm. his parents who he lives with are extremely forward sex positive parents who are very okay with him bringing girls home there are certain things which you know are accurate representations of like this kind of indo-anglian and certain things which are definitely a stretch which i felt like were tropes that were entirely borrowed from right, western right 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 yeah like films. a recur- like recurring themes in yeah. like english language productions right i think yeah. like sex being normal part of life yeah a part of like a young person's life was something that like appears very often in like movies i would say which maybe not necessarily are written in english but like have this like audience who's done this quote unquote required reading that we're talking about yeah. which is being well versed in like international cinema basically yeah. and the language and aesthetic the aesthetic language the visual styles of international cinema like there are certain themes that keep appearing and like yeah. you know being young independent urban life like sex being a normal part of like a young person living like you know being like independent from your parents etc like these are the things that keep yeah appearing and like crucially like in the show also right like because most of the show is in the english language and these characters are conversing with each other in the english language like a lot of the themes a lot of the ways in which they're talking about sex is like things that you could definitely pick out of any hollywood movie you know so mm. i think that is something that is interesting to note and what that basically you know kind of like brought me like when i was watching the show i was just like okay this is interesting because a i'm tying it back to this sajeet pai article mm. and two it's like what why has zoya akhtar chosen to invest in this particular show like what was the intention yeah. behind this show is there an audience for it i don't think it did big numbers but definitely is an audience but i don't think it's the most relatable content out yeah. there that's still okay but are they trying to create like some kind of like an aspirational show about yeah. you know I mean I think at this point you know it's like it's interesting because now we're talking about a very like narrow segment right yeah. of english speakers but it's interesting to then just think about like look at this entire phenomenon through like the lens of language and think about english more broadly right and do some self reflection i think about mm. yeah. you know my favorite pastime <laughs> but yeah like just want to think about english more broadly like you said this thing about it being aspirational which historically it has been yeah. like you know right from the i mean you start 
English comes to India through colonial rule, right after independence, you have like a class of people who are well versed in English, they tend to be bureaucrats, they tend to be like clerical workers in governments, etc, working in administrative jobs. And they have access to this language and then comes liberalization and you have like an entire like service sector which is booming. So like access to English then gives you access to like these jobs yeah. and like global flows of information. And I just want to see like what does it mean to be like an English speaker or what does English mean to people now because like we've been like liberalized globalized for more than 30 years things have changed drastically like whether it comes to like technological innovations like you know we have more smartphones than ever before internet is cheaper than ever before we have like streaming platforms and like what has this meant for people's desire to learn english is yeah. it still aspirational like what is this like cultural phenomenon of like being closer to English than you are to any like Indian language or your native tongue. So, dude, I was thinking, <laughs> uh, what does it mean to speak English in India in like 2023? So I feel like one thing that is interesting to me about like knowledge of like just language and class, right? When we're thinking about that is to sort of like decouple this notion of like the economic elite yeah. and like cultural elite on the other hand right like because we know that not all english speakers are affluent and like vice versa not everybody who is like at the the top 0.001% is necessarily like an english speaker or someone whom you would classify as like english first or an, an indo-anglian if we had to borrow sajid bai's terminology yeah and i think episode. we have a pretty interesting guest who's joining us for this episode. I think she couldn't be a more perfect guest. Suspense. Suspense. So our guest for today's episode is Tara Kapoor. Tara Kapoor has 14 years of experience in the media industry across content, marketing, brand building. But most crucially, she currently leads marketing for Duolingo English Test in India. She has previously worked at Netflix and Vice Media and is also a founding member of Vitamins 3, a content platform focused on empowering girls through storytelling. Tara is an award-winning marketer, with her work getting recognized by coveted global awards such as Spikes Asia, the Clio Awards, Webby Awards, as well as many well-recognized Indian award shows such as Curious Creative Awards and the Effies. Tara, firstly, thank you so much for joining us and making time for this interview. As you know, in this episode, we want to understand what it means to speak English in India, who English speakers are, and, you know, what the ongoing, like, cultural, socioeconomic relevance of English is in this very transformed landscape that we find ourselves in, both culturally, socioeconomically, in terms of technology and access to technological platforms that we have right now. So to start with, like maybe you can like tell our audience a little bit more about the kind of work you've done in the past and what you're doing with Duolingo right now. Uh, thanks so much for having me, first of all. And I think just a quick background on myself. I've been working in India for the last 15 years, primarily based in advertising and marketing. But I started my career as a journalist. I was reporting on marketing and advertising for about six years before I kind of transitioned to the roles that I, you know, have done in the later part of my career. So I think for me, a large part of what I was doing was just like looking at consumer trends and consumer behaviors that sort of evolved, especially in the corporate space. My current role is to market the Duolingo English test in India, which is a high stakes English proficiency test that students typically use when they want to study abroad. So it's, you know, one of those requirements that people from countries like India will need if they need to study abroad. And I think that's also the basis of a lot of the conversation that we're going to have around the importance that English plays as people sort of navigate their futures, whether it's professional or education and things like that. But that's a quick summary of what I'm doing right now. Thanks so much. We're so thrilled to have you join us today because I think you're like this blend of experience that you have, like both in media as well as now, like working with an education app that deal specifically with languages I like your perspective would be incredibly valuable for the kind of questions we have been asking ourselves and I think you know to start with like just to get 
the lay of the land, I think what we wanted to get your take on is who are English language speakers in India? Because we find that the stats are a little fuzzy. The most recent publicly available data is from 2011. So just from whatever information you may have, like who are English language speakers in India? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And like you said, you know, it's a little difficult to absolutely quantify number-wise given our population and the size of this country and things like that. But for me, what makes sense is when you look at it from a percent perspective, right? So for me, it's 10% of Indians that speak English. So, you know, can hold conversation, can communicate in the language. And it's about 5% of the population is actually fluent, you know, so can read, write to a certain standard of English. And when you look at it just from that, you're like 95% of this country actually can't read or write in the language and is not fluent in English, right? Which is surprising because, you know, you sort of look at the country and you think that it's a much larger number, but those are kind of the silos and bubbles that we live in when it comes to things. And I think when you look at English learners, it's broken down into two or three buckets, right? There's the person that's learned English throughout their life. They speak English, you know, at a regular basis, you know, so for example, you and me would probably fall in that bracket as people who are very comfortable. English is very natural to them. Then there's the people that have learned English as a second language. So their day-to-day -day would be in their mother tongue. And then they use English when they need to sort of adapt professionally or, you know, it's what they've kind of built themselves to learn and, and educate themselves with. And then there's the third bracket, which are the people that are not fluent in English at all and just about are getting by with, you know, a few sentences, few words and are really seriously starting to try and learn the language to, you know, really improve where they stand from an economic strata perspective in society. So for me, if I'm looking at English learners, they would kind of fall in those three brackets. Yeah, I think I wanted to pick up on something that you said, and, and this may be like a very simplistic question, but it's something we've been debating. Like, how do we define fluency, right, in English or any other language? Or how is Duolingo defining fluency? Are these numbers based on the 2011 census, the stats that you cited? This is data that we have as well. But yeah, the census is, is a benchmark of it, but it's also updated data from other research companies that have also put together the information. So I think Leap Scholar had done a, a study that also looked at English learners and a few other publications right. as well. Right. So like, okay, if we are operating with these stats, if we have like 10%, would that include people who basically can even like their level of English knowledge is just a few phrases even. And what then do we need in order to become fluent? Is it that, you know, you have an education from an English medium school? Are we specifically talking about people who use English actively in their everyday life? So the ASER has a study, which is kind of a benchmark that we use. So that's the annual status of education report that comes out in India. Um, this is really extensive in terms of how they look at English language. And what I found really interesting about this is the benchmark is there's two categories, right? One is second standard English and one is fifth standard English, right? So if you're looking at it from right. an Indian perspective, if you have a level of fluency across the four aspects of language, which is, you know, reading, writing, comprehension, speaking, it is at a fifth grade level, right? So that is your benchmark right. of fluency, because that means you can get through your day to day, whether it is in class, or if it's, you know, in mm -hmm. the real world where you're trying to get by with your day-to-day -day as well as with your job. So fifth standard is kind of the benchmark to define fluency. And that fifth standard benchmark is only being hit by 5% of the country. Right. And this is this is the Assar report you said, like Pratham Education yes. Foundations, right? Yes. Okay. So I guess like if you're operating with like these aggregate stats, like who are Duolingo's users? Like where do they fall? Like, the people who use Duolingo, like where do they fall in terms of like English language proficiency? Do they fall within that 10% broadly speaking? Yes. So when you look at Duolingo, what's really interesting is that the idea of the app is to widen access. So the fact is, it's a free app, right? You can sort of use it. It's a certain standard of education that we're hitting as a benchmark. And that has opened up access of learners across the world, not just in India, right? So if you look at our learners from India, they come from all over. So geographically, they come from all over the country. In terms of demographics, it is a much younger audience, right? Because I think it's also 
the first movers who adopt technology. So Duolingo is relatively new. It is not a brand that has massively penetrated in the market yet, right? So when you look at it, it's typically younger people that are using the app right now. And again, it's broken into a couple of brackets. So the first bracket would be, again, people like you and me who are very fluent in English, who probably use English as a first language. For them, the app is used more from a recreational perspective, right? It's learning other languages beyond English. And it's kind of like, hey, I'm planning to go to Spain for a vacation. I want to learn some Spanish phrases. And they love the whole gamified angle of the app. Besides that, the second bracket would be people that are learning English as a second language. Those are really serious English learners. And when you look outside the US, a very large population of Duolingo users are using the app to become more fluent in English. Those are the much more serious learners. These are people who are really using English to uplift themselves in society. And a very large bracket of that comes from India, right? These are people who need to be more fluent and more proficient in English. And they use the app to better their language or practice it a little more. And then the third bracket would be people who are learning Hindi on the app from other languages, who are people who are not necessarily, you know, people who have learned Hindi as their first language. So we see learners from Bengali, from English to Hindi as other brackets of English learners. For the DET, which is the product that I use, the Duolingo English test, we see test takers from all across the country. And a large portion of that is also access, right? It's a digital test that's required to showcase proficiency. You've understood from the statistics that we've told you, right? Between that 5 to 10% of English speakers in the country, there's a reason that universities need these tests to be able to evaluate if Indian students can actually speak fluently or be able to attend the courses in universities abroad. And based on that, what we've tried to do is provide a test that you can take from anywhere as long as you have a stable internet connection and a computer or a laptop. So because of that, we've seen people come from really small towns across the country who have, who have been taking our tests. So that broadening of access, I think, is is really exciting in terms of the work that we've been doing in the market. You know, a couple of points came to mind. So, you know, Ketki and I, we've been talking about like how language helps like define like identity or like comes to be associated like a socioeconomic class status even. And we wanted to look at English in this context. And I think just like looking at Duolingo's annual report, when we're seeing that non-English languages rank pretty highly in terms of what people are seeking out. And like you said, that for a lot of people, recreational learning for like travel or just interest or maybe even, you know, you're a K-pop fan, right? And you want to pick up Korean as a result. It's interesting that looking at language in the formation of like this identity, it's shifting a little bit. It's not enough that you are fluent in English. It's like, I'm so fluent in English that I want to learn another non-Indian language. Yeah that you know i'm gonna do just for fun so yeah i wonder are there other indian languages apart from hindi on duolingo or does duolingo have plans right now there's bengali as another indian language but i think the main focus for duolingo right now is to really focus on the courses that they have and do that better right so there are other languages they will expand slowly but the point is for example we take you to a certain level of english learning the plan for the future is to eventually get to a point where Within the app, you should be able to learn seamlessly and get to an absolute level of proficiency on the app, right? So that will keep extending. What I found really interesting in terms of what you were mentioning is the kind of split, right? Where culture really influences language learning. So, you know, that entire movement of K-culture has really reflects in the kind of language learning that people are doing. So you're seeing a lot of people really learning Korean or having interest in K-culture as a result, right? So you're seeing the beauty industry evolve, you're seeing K-pop as music really expand across. And that comes from people just watching the content and experiencing that lifestyle, right? But beyond that, I think English plays a very different role. So when you're looking at it, one is broadening the scope to really understand cultural nuance, which becomes where people want to expand, you know, people are learning Urdu to sort of, you know, be more tied to art and literature and culture in those senses and then there are people who are like hey I need English to better my life right so it's kind of two ends of the spectrum right so one is English being that unifying language that helps you progress in society and the other is broadening the scope of language learning to expand your cultural experiences right yeah and I mean that's really fascinating and perhaps like 
you know, on that note, like it would be interesting to potentially like dive a little deeper into what are exactly the motivations that are driving Indians to learn English, right? Because we went on the Duolingo app and, you know, we opted to learn English and the language of the app was then in Hindi. And, you know, as you're sort of registering for the course, like there's a bunch of options that pop up that ask the user, why do you want to learn English? And some of the options that came up were things like education, job, social mobility, travel. And then there were like some interesting other options that came up, like to use words appropriately or in the right context, to connect with people better or for enjoyment. So are the primary motivations more practical in nature for people to learn English, jobs, education, or also for things like earning some level of cultural capital? So like to gain access to social, cultural capital spaces, etc., gain access to people and things like that. So it's really interesting. And this is also kind of this, the world is in different spaces, right? In India, the primary motivators are exactly what you're saying. It's practical. So the highest reason Indians learn English on Duolingo is for school and education. And that really reflects in terms of also India being the largest market for the Duolingo English test in terms of volume, right? So India is a key market in terms of English learners learning English to educate themselves. So school education is the primary motivator to learn. The second is work. So Mm. all of these are kind of really practical spaces. It's to kind of better themselves in society, earn higher salaries, get into better schools. That's the number one and number two reasons. And then third part, which you spoke about, right, in terms of just adapting and becoming a little better at how they're using terms and words and things like that. That's the brain training aspect. And that's the number three in what we've sort of tracked so far. Travel and all the softer, more cultural things comes much later for Indians. And what's interesting is if you saw this data in the US, it completely flips, where you see the cultural Mm -hmm. reasons being the higher motivators for why people are using Duolingo. And then things like education and work come a little later. So it's a much more fun recreational app in your more Western countries. And as soon as you start coming towards the East, it's much more serious in terms of, you know, really work and education being the primary motivators. Yeah. And I guess it really becomes like the language of aspiration in that way, right? Because in India, especially like learning English is tied to quite literally the goals that you want to achieve in life, whether they are educational or professional. But that's really, really fascinating. And I think, you know, I mean, maybe like moving a little bit away from Duolingo, I mean, you also have experience working in Netflix and generally in media and entertainment. Maybe it would be also interesting to explore, you know, like what is the role that language and specifically the English language play in content production or consumption on streaming platforms in India? So, you know, something that we were thinking about, is there a language strategy in terms of, you know, how shows or films are being developed, dubbed, licensed, etc. And how does it play into like marketing or content development decisions? So I think this is a really interesting question because it's kind of two ends of the spectrum, right? When you look at education and you look at English, English is that universal language that sort of is essential to expand your horizons as you sort of progress in life, right? So for example, shifting to global companies, you need to know your local language as well as English to be able to present strategy plans, you know, in a larger ecosystem. So essential from from that perspective, you want to study abroad, you need to be able to speak the language to be able to learn and, and, you know, sort of educate yourself in, in those sort of universities, right? So you're pushed to learn English to improve yourself, no matter where you sort of land in, in life, right? So even when you look at it from an Uber, Uber driver perspective, right? An Uber driver who speaks English has a lot more ability to be able to command, you know, a higher salary versus somebody who might not be able to speak English. So right. English is, is that one language when it comes to education and it's essential to sort of progress yourself in that manner. And then the other end of the spectrum, you have entertainment, which is where the consumer absolutely drives what direction a platform starts creating content in, right? There's so much content out there in the world. And when it comes to content consumption, this is where the person has absolute authority to decide what they want to watch. So you want to watch something hyper-localized in your language, you will find that and you will consume that content, right? So Mm -hmm. it kind of flips to the other end of the spectrum where people will kind of dictate where OTT platforms or, you know, even films start producing content. So 
you know, whether it's, you've seen the impact that even Bhojpuri films have, right, right, in the country, because people will consume what is local and culturally relevant to them. And that's sort of where you're seeing OTT platforms move, right? Like there's hyper-localization that is sort of coming in. You're seeing massive amounts of South Indian content being created for platforms. You're seeing people adapt, dub content in multiple languages. So you're seeing massive global shows being dubbed in like 10, 15 different languages because that's how people are consuming, right? So it's absolutely two ends of the spectrum. So there's English for empowerment and the unifying language. And then there's hyper-localization for entertainment and like how you want to spend your free time. And who would you say is like the primary audience for content in non-Indian languages? So, you know, English specifically and then potentially other languages as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how you look at your audiences, right? So one way of kind of equating the audience that it would be your kind of more global trendsetter sort of profile, right? So somebody who's influenced by global culture is probably more westernized in terms of how what their upbringing has been like, went to right. an English medium school, you know, it, it's kind of depends on what sort of bracket you would put them in. So you have this as your, you could call it your core trend-setting audience. And then you yeah. have a second layer, which is an audience that is kind of influenced by that layer. So you will mm. have a second audience. So these two audiences that will probably consume those. And then there'll be the few shows and films that, you know, really break the, the zeitgeist and and sort of, become mass movies or mass shows like a money heist is a good example of that right Right. which sort of expands then beyond that co-cohort and goes a lot wider but it completely depends on how those shows play out and you can't necessarily like really classify solid demographics around this especially when it comes to content consumption right because people's consumption habits are very varied and it's not like one person will only like one type of content. So you will have people having very distinct and individualistic tastes when it comes to what they like to watch. So you will find somebody who absolutely loves K-drama, but also loves like really massy Bollywood movies. And then also likes, you know, really graphic true crime documentaries. So it's very hard to classify people's viewing and consumption behavior. Yeah, but you did mention that like, you know, there is this trend setting audience and then there's potentially like a secondary audience which responds to these trends. Could you expand on that just a little bit? Like, you know, are you trying to say that there is potentially an audience which has an appetite for, you know, more global content and then they get to decide, at least in the context of India, what is potentially the trendy content to be watching? And then there's a secondary audience which sort of reacts to those trends and is like okay that's the cool tv show to be watching and i'm going to be watching that is that how you see it playing out yeah i mean i feel like it's a bit reactionary in general right so you see shows that perform in western audiences and then this audience is the one that sort of picks up on that around the same time so you know they follow your western actors they understand what's sort of releasing when it's releasing and then they'll figure out how to watch it right so at the end of the day ott platforms are providing you a library And it just, you know, depends on what starts trending based on how people consume that content, right? So, for example, these shows are typically created for Western audiences. This audience Mm -hmm. will get influenced by that. They'll kind of consume it. As they consume it, you sort of see that kind of spreading out via social media. So you have your tastemakers, so to say, talking talking about these shows. And then you see the second layer that kind of gets influenced by what they're hearing from a word of mouth perspective. And then that sort of builds that influence. So... For example, you see that with Succession, right? Like Succession is not a massive show in India by any shape or form. But there is a certain sect of society that absolutely loves it, is obsessed with the show, talks about it in a certain way. And then there's a new layer that is starting to get influenced. And it's what, season four, where now people are starting to watch season one, you know? So it's kind of that. And why has that happened? You have a platform like Geo that's kind of opened up access, right? So it's kind of making it easier to watch that kind of content as well so access plays a massive role in it right like you have your top tier audience which are the ones who can afford to pay for a full-fledged netflix subscription right so when you think about it even from how much that costs on a monthly basis you understand why it's kind of restricted in terms of what you're consuming because a lot of people don't watch this content because they just don't have access to it yeah and i wonder like you know if language is that barrier to access right like and if something like dubbing for example plays a role in providing people access to western content so even if you think about like marvel shows i'm pretty sure it followed a similar trend like succession 
you know i mean like in the sense that perhaps at a given point in time marvel etc or like western big blockbuster films etc was still something that were appreciated by a certain sect who could really very directly access the language of these movies and then you see you know even with like hotstar and things like that these platforms sort of providing dubbed versions in you know like six major languages in india on the platform for these different marvel shows and movies etc so i'm wondering what your take on that is yeah i think obviously dubs does play a massive role in terms of that access but the largest part of it is affordability right so i think when you start seeing like you're talking about hotstar right they have five or six different models in terms of how they open that door for consumers that go wider and then to cater to that consumer that's where dubs sort of start coming into play right because you're like hey there's no point me opening a door if they come to my platform and they're like like why should i watch this i'd rather than spend 50 rupees and go and buy a theater ticket and watch one movie and then decide exactly what i'm watching instead of you know coming to a platform that's got nothing of interest for me so that's where the dubs come into play but for that to actually have impact you first need to have affordable options that are available right so right. with netflix the whole mobile plan was sort of opening those doors you're seeing that absolutely transform with geo right now right in terms of yeah. what has happened with the ipl and you're just seeing the numbers transform already in terms of viewership right because you're trying to shift behavior of consumers and then eventually they'll adapt a pricing models that sort of evolve mm-hmm. i'm assuming you know in terms of how they start looking at that ecosystem but i think affordability is a massive factor that comes into play as well right so even when it comes to education that was one of the things that duolingo was trying to do as well right was improve access to education so that it's not just a price barrier that's holding people back across society right so when you look at the language app you have a bill gates who uses the language app and you have syrian refugees who are using the language app similarly mm-hmm. for the det right you have students who are taking it in your metros but also in small towns in tamil nadu and kerala and all across you know punjab and all all across the country and a large part of that is having the ability to take it and then the second is having a price point that is affordable for you right um, and you're seeing that with the mobile phone and data and that's sort of what has happened for ott platforms yeah. as well right so i think more than language it's actually affordability and then language is a second layer that plays into that as you move forward Yeah, even at Hotstar I think there was definitely, you know, some level of marketing which did talk a lot about like having dubbed versions of international shows and movies as a value proposition. But I do It's a massive I agree. value proposition. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you need to kind of have hooks that sort of bring that in, right? But it's right. indicators that first will come from the audience in terms of demand, right? Marvel wasn't dubbed automatically into these languages. There was a realization that hey there is a big fan base that exists in yeah. these pockets and then we will dub in those languages. It's not the other way around, right? You know, yeah. we were speaking about this earlier as well, right? When it was about Money Heist, right? The initial seasons of Money Heist were not dubbed in any Indian languages because you're like why would Indians watch a Spanish show? But mm-hmm. when you saw the demand, you know, crop up during COVID, that's when they're like hey this show has massive resonance in the indian market let's really localize it right so it was the last yeah. season where we really created a campaign talking about localization and really making it feel like a local show because that's when we're like hey this show is available in you know so many different languages and as indians we love it so yeah. we've now made it accessible for you you know and it was catering to a demand that was cropping up on social media because we saw like i don't know how many people talking about hey can we have money heist and dubs So what I'm hearing is like a lot of the spaces in which this demand sort of appears and manifests, like you mentioned, is social media. And I think like this entire episode, I think we've been like toying with the idea of accessibility, language and technology, like we're kind of like operating in this space. And that's what is kind of tying together even like Duolingo and like a streaming platform. Right. So I think like we were thinking about. like let's say who is someone who has like a twitter account and is likely to be tweeting about succession and i think like the person tweeting about succession what level of fluency in the language is that person likely to have and like just educated guess this person is probably very fluent in english to begin with and yeah. they're the ones who are vocal on social media making something go viral or like you know even success of a tv show or movie is measured in memeability 
social media conversations etc i think like we then in terms of like the english language speaking population in india we're again operating like within quite like a narrow like sliver right so i think like the next thing that i i wanted your take on because we've been talking so much about accessibility is i think both duolingo and all the streaming platforms have done is they've sort of brought like english in like people's pockets right like by bringing it on the phone gamifying it making it more engaging and i think over here like focusing more on the language learners of like the duolingo app rather than the people who would be studying abroad i wanted to understand like your take on how duolingo and something like netflix and like you know dubbing like international content in indian languages like making english more accessible to wider groups of people so the part that i kind of disagree about what you said was that you know it's just that top layer that's vocal on social media that's not true it just depends on where you're looking right you have all sorts of different sets of society vocal on different social platforms at different times right so when you see social sentiment as a benchmark i think everyone as a consumer is vocal in some shape or form but it sort of depends on where you're looking and then obviously what your understanding of those languages are right so a lot of times you know unfortunately when you look at the advertising and marketing world a lot of us exist in our own bubbles as well right so it's kind of like yeah. what we understand and how we build our approach around that and you guys will know this yourself in terms of how you sort of looked at your own jobs right but when you start digging into even facebook as a platform or your share chats or you know moj and takata can you know all of these million other platforms that exist out there it's a different universe in terms of consumer behavior and what they're saying and what demands they're making right so a lot of that informs the decisions that companies like you know any ott platforms that we are kind of making the decisions when it comes to dub strategy because it's also the roi that you're getting on each language right there's no point either duolingo developing a hundred different languages if the long tail of that has very little usage similarly for dubs for languages right like after a point there's a limitation to how much brands can dub and in how many languages so you also have to look at the roi of those things so i think that's one part of it right which is the social media consumer behavior understanding and then working backwards from there and the other part is english is going to be a language that's around right like there's nothing that anyone can really do about about it from a perspective of that being that big unifying global language and we're seeing that happen in india from an extent with hindi right like there's that push to sort of create hindi as a one unifying language for the country that has a lot of we all know this restrictions that sort of come into play and this history and culture and a lot of baggage from that as well exactly so when yeah. that happens english becomes the language that then feels more neutral and obviously because it's already universal from a global perspective it feels more natural for that to be a language that people adopt mm-hmm. much quicker in schools and things like that so i feel like it's two ends of the spectrum like i don't think right. english is going to take away from other languages and it's not going to be a business strategy for companies to push mm-hmm. english you know because you're always going to have consumers that will want content in different shapes and forms but you will be looking at what to prioritize based on volume you know so it is a mix and match kind of approach for these things right right and i think like you mentioned like school system i think this is one thing like a question that kept coming to me which is and also the fact that like you know you mentioned the asar report right which is primarily like dealing with like school age children right and i wanted to understand how duolingo is trying to sort of coexist with school learning right like is there any conversation around that like thinking about like the level of language proficiency you attain in a school and like is duolingo thought of as like supplemental or is it thought of as for older people like once they're done with their schooling like if they want to like learn a language at that stage in their lives so is there any like chat about this dimension of things so we have duolingo abc which is a kids early learning app that also exists i don't think you can look at it as one or the other right when it comes to schools right so i would say that it is a supplementary product it's not necessarily something that can take away from your formal school education also right now this is just one factor of it right it's language and the idea is that you know you will get a high standard of 
education from the app, but it's something that's beneficial or additional to what you're doing. In some cases, like for example, I'm learning Spanish on the app. I'm not doing any additional classes to learn Spanish, right? And for me, I can see a certain level of my fluency adapting as I learn that language. So yes, I could use Duolingo to learn the language absolutely independently, but I don't have a time frame in mind, right? I'm able to do this however I feel like with as much time as I want to put towards it without really understanding what my broad structure is, right? Like I'm self-learning along with Duolingo. But when you're looking at a formal education, ultimately you have a time frame. you need to learn your language, you have your homework, you're sort of testing yourself. You're doing a lot more to practice beyond just using an app, right? You have the fear that your teacher sort of puts in your mind if you're not sort of doing things. And then you have the motivators of sort of going grade to grade, right? And you do need a formal education at the end of the day for a lot of things that you need in life, right? So I wouldn't look at it as it actually being something that can take away from education. But if you're looking at it from what level of education does it provide, it is high, but it's up to you in terms of how you utilize that, right? So I think that's the difference between actual like human engagement versus using an app. Yeah, I guess I feel like my question in my brain is what level of education do you need in order to use the app, right? No, so the thing is when you start the app, it's basics, right? So it starts with the basics of a language. So you obviously you need to know the base language to be able to learn, right? So if I'm learning a different language from English, I need to have a level of understanding of English, right? Which is the Duolingo language app is sort of structured for somebody who has a level of fluency in the base language. Like you said, like the the Hindi app, you need to be able to read in Hindi. Like if you're doing Hindi to English, you need to be able to read the text in Hindi to understand the instruction. So you do need that baseline of education in the language that you're using for that initial period. But Duolingo ABC is a early learning course, which is a, a completely different product. That's where you could be a little child who is absolutely learning from scratch. So like a user, you have to be like comfortable in at least one like base language basic literacy essentially you need that in order to like then use the language learning potential like even like tap into that language learning potential yeah but the thing is you would have that base level using a mobile phone itself right so right like because it's a product that you will use on the mobile yeah you you will have a basic level of literacy to be able to use a mobile phone right so you will already be picking a language that you're using the phone with and Mm -hmm. then from there you're just adding that layer to your app, right? So I don't think it's necessarily limiting access because if you're able to read what's on your mobile phone um, in a certain language and that's available on Duolingo, there's not much of a barrier that I think comes in from there. But because it is a mobile product, right? So that's probably why you see a lot of our users being younger people who are, you know, kind of adapted towards technology in those senses. But none of the sentences are overly complicated it's a mobile app so if you can use the mobile phone then you should be able to use it in one of those languages thanks so much for listening dude i was thinking is hosted by sanaya chandar and ketki sharma our producer for this episode is yash hirave you can find us on spotify apple podcasts or wherever you get your audio content be sure to follow us at DIWT Pod on Twitter and at Dude I Was Thinking on Instagram. If you have a fleeting thought you'd like us to dissect and analyze or want to collaborate, write to us at dudeiwasthinking at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. Bye.